what a beautiful, what a beautiful sound for a Sunday morning radio to double X and the fuzzy logic science show. And today we're going to be talking about extinction and de-extinction. What does that mean? And what are some of your favorite animals or maybe some of the saddest animals that we've seen go extinct? Because in Australia we have a pretty dismal record with extinction. And it's not all bad, though, because there are moves to restore species to an environment and even bring a species back from the dead, dare I say. Now, I'm really pleased to have in the studio with me today on Fuzzy Logic a couple of friends. Uh, Millie, welcome back, Millie. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be back with you guys again. And Camille, the first time on air with you, Camille. Yes. Hello. Good morning. And uh, now Millie and Camille are both... uh, Formally inducted into <laughs> the Halls of Fame, Fuzzy Logic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, we're going to kick off. Well, we're going to be talking about uh, Lord Howe Island, uh, Tasmanian uh, tigers, and uh, a mouse. Oh, well, I'll let you go into that one, Millie, <laughs> because you've got a couple of stories for us about, uh, about this. Yeah, well, I'm going to firstly be talking about one of my favourite Australian animals, the bilbies. Uh, and my story takes us to South Australia, to the Arid Recovery Reserve, and they work on the sustainable restoration of arid ecosystems. And here we meet one of the key species they're working with, the bilby. So these super cute long-eared marsupials are vital to these ecosystems where their diggings help to um, infiltrate, for water to infiltrate soil profiles, uh, collect leaf litter and seeds. And they're so important that they're known as ecosystem engineers, and they're perfectly designed for what they do. Well, that, that's so. That's a really good example of why we care about extinction. Not just yeah. because we want to make chocolate, uh, <laughs> exactly. eat chocolates out of the bilby, and they're an adorable animal, but mm. they do something useful in the environment. Yeah, so they, their diggings are um, really useful for water to infiltrate soil profiles and for the seeds and leaf litter to be caught in them. So, yeah. Do you know what a, a bilby eats there? Are they uh, insectivores or omnivores? Or I believe they're insectivores, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 And, and so they're, they're predating on, well, insects, we pre- presumably. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, Rod, they're also the perfect prey for feral cats. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the cat story is a really, really sad one. We yeah. covered one a while ago on Fuzzy Logic, and it took something like 80, 70, 80 years for the cats to get from the first settlement, the worst mm. white settlements, uh, to cross the entire country. Wow. And I, I spoke to an ecologist from the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, and a cat will eat something like seven animals a day. And mm. also they're surplus killers. So they don't just eat... do it for fun. They just do it for fun, don't they? Mm. Yeah. They don't eat they eat more than they need just to mm. just to stay alive. Mm. And well you we've all seen the cats, you know, playing with the toy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Torturing it. So uh, um, much as cats are amazing animals. Yeah. So they they've been tearing into the bilbies. Yeah, so native species like the bilbies aren't adapted to outwit these invasive predators like the cat. Right. And that's because um, our country's been isolated for millions of years. So our unique marsupials haven't been able to evolve and adapt with these foreign predators. 
So this means that they're um, unable to properly protect themselves and it's actually what's called prey naivety. Um, and it's one of the leading factors for population decline and also why reintroductions are failing so much. Yeah. Uh, what, so one thing I learnt from the Wildlife Conservancy, because I was up in the, uh, the Kimberleys, I went to the, one of their conservation uh, reserves, mm. right, was the, the burning practices make a really big difference to predation from cats and foxes. And uh, if you allow the landscape to really burn intensely, then it takes all the way the ground cover mm. and that makes the animals like the bilbies and all the other small things really vulnerable. They've got nowhere to hide. Yeah, mm. yeah. So... Um it's no surprise also with these bilbies that they've been trying to train them to recognise invasive predators. Um, but it's actually really, really difficult to figure out what cues and strategies work. So what they've done is they've thought, well, if we can't teach these bilbies the correct behaviour to avoid predators, why can't they teach themselves? Oh. So to test this, they... Um, introduced five cats within the reserve and it's like a method to um, fast track evolution of these bilby populations can you remind me where this reserve is it's in south australia okay yeah yeah um and so for two years these cats um were used as live training methods to teach these bilby populations uh, so the, 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 the bilby learns that this thing is dangerous and to in a non-fatal way. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing they explored was whether the bilby behaviour differed between cat-exposed and non-cat-exposed. And what they found was that the cat-exposed bilbies spent less time moving around and more time hiding undercover. So in just two years, they learned how to hide instead of running around in the open where they're easily spotted by these cats. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That, that's... that's that, that's a good story. It is a good Millie. story. I, I, I do like that <laughs> behavioural change, and it reminds me of teaching uh, native animals how to cope with the cane toad. Yeah, I, I find that story really interesting too. How they um, have you heard about that, Camilla? A little bit, but not much. Yeah. So what they've been doing is um, feeding uh, cane toad sausages um, <laughs> to um, to our native prey. And so what they're doing is exposing them to little bits of um, cane toad without the full exposure, and now they're learning to avoid it too. Non, Non-lethal cane toad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we, we do it too, don't you? Like if you, have, if you binge on some food or maybe some <laughs> seafood that's off, the next time you see that food, that's a really, and, and even humans, that's Strange. a really powerful thing, isn't it? You, you avoid that in future. Mm, I wish I did that with chocolate. The amount of times <laughs> I've made myself sick with chocolate but still keep eating well, it. <laughs> Really, next time we'll we'll uh, get you. We're going to make you sick on chocolate. Well, I'm, I'm excited to try this experiment. Sounds like fun. <laughs> uh, okay, so how's it how's it going then? So the second thing that they wanted to test was if these um, cat exposed bilbies were put in high in areas with higher um, cat, um, higher density with cats, um, if they were less um, likely to be eaten basically and what they found was that they had a significantly greater chance of survival so they put them in reserves with 10 cats instead of five and they were able to avoid them more which is super that's exciting <laughs> that's really cool mm. and one thing i like about that 
Well, I guess the question is uh, how scalable that that, that is. Mm-hmm. So, can can do we have the resources to teach bilbies over enough of the landscape? Uh, to make a big difference. I agree. And it also really relies upon our ability to control cat density still. Mm. You know, like there's, you can't control in outside of the fence, outside of the reserve, where, where the cats are, how many there are. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing. And another thing it made me question as well was what about other, um, other predators like foxes? Yes. What happens when you put them in the mix as well? Yes, but it, it kind of shows how desperate we are when we, we're having to do this kind of measure to save an animal. And, uh, and I had confessed to my friends today that I went to uh, Mulligan's Flat Reserve uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was really impressed. Oh, I, haven't, I haven't been there before. <laughs> But but the the strategy there is very different, isn't it? At yeah. Mulligan's Flat, they've built an exclosure fence to keep the predators out, mm. and a safe zone inside. We saw a um, not a not a bilby, betong, a betong. Thank you. Mm, that's yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, the thing bounding away into the shrubbery, which is really nice. Mm. Oh, okay. So, a- any more on that story, Millie? Um, that's it for the moment, but I think it really opens up future research opportunities, not only within Australia, but also on a global scale. Yeah. So well, it shows that it is possible, it is in, possible. That, in, in that instance. Mm. And I think we all need those positive stories every now and then because, you know, you're always faced with hearing all the negative things. Yeah. So it's really important to still see there's light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that, Millie, because that's something that really weighs on me. And that mm. is like, I, I sometimes feel like a crash scene investigator because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm writing books about climate and environmental destruction and, and it becomes really overwhelming sometimes mm. and, and I'm, I'm on a bad day I feel really depressed about it but that's I, why I'm here Rod to cheer up <laughs> tell you the you, good stories well you're doing a great you're doing a great job a great job Millie and you, you've got to cling on to these little things that that make a difference and mm. it, it does help I mean okay it's not you know, across the whole entire continent, but uh, uh, we, we've got some more stories, more hopeful stories along this similar theme. But um, do we want to say any more about the ecosystem services or the role of an animal in the environment? Why why an extinction matters at all? Yeah, I mean, I guess because everything in an ecosystem is important to it. Because just then, the bilbies are important to the plants that are happening there so i think we yeah we have to look at them as a full scale thing it's really hard to know isn't it what exactly the impact of a species is and if you put a a species like a fox or a cat or rat rabbit Mm. uh, in an environment and it has all these knock-on effects that ripple through the entire system yeah Uh, conversely if you take an animal out it's very hard to know what happens so it could be some obscure parrot that and there's the um the yellow belly or the orange parrot, parrot I can't remember the mm. it lives in the forests in Victoria and I think it migrates I'm completely <laughs> ad, ad living here so I could be wrong but I think it, it migrates down to Tasmania yeah, 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 I, you, yeah. You, yeah I don't remember the name of it completely off the top of my head though orange belly something like that parrot yeah okay mm. uh, but what does that bird do in the environment, so it's, it's, I guess it's eating seeds, right? So yeah. it's picking up seeds from one location and dropping them in, in another location. So that in turn affects the propagation of trees and plants through the forest. 
Or it could be something like, um, maybe not the parrot, but uh, the... Um, uh, what's the parasitic plant, the mistletoe yeah. that lives on a tree, right? Or you could say, like, we have a a psychological reaction to the concept of a parasite. It's like really icky. But the parasite is actually really important in that environment. And I would have to do a show in the future as to why why that matters. But mm. the fact that we don't like it... <laughs> doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> because it's doing something really important. And, and, and you said, Millie, just now that the... Um, the what was the animal? Bilby. <laughs> The bilby uh, does things like it digs up the soil, the water penetrates, nutrients penetrate the soil. And so uh, the, the mistletoe is doing something similar. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have... And what happens when, when it leaves? Like, what fills that niche? What happens uh, to the rest yeah. of, as you were saying, the knock-on effects for the, the rest of the ecosystem? And then, consequently, us. It, yeah. Uh, Millie and Millie was just uh, heroically pressing the buttons now, so I want a round of applause. Good idea. <laughs> Doing very well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Kinella, you've got a story about a mouse. I do. It's a smoky mouse. Um, so it's a very small rat sized mouse, which is about 90 millimeters, nine centimeters long. And its tail is 14 centimeters long. I love that. It's oh, tail, wow. <laughs> tail is almost twice the length of its body, but it will fit in the palm of your hand, which is perfect. And it weighs about 52 grams, which Aww. is so cute. <laughs> but its fur is this pale gray smoky color, which is hence where the name comes from. And they've just been reintroduced into a, um, 2000 hectare Reserve near the New South Wales Victorian border called Nungutter, I believe. Um, and it was a region that was devastated by the bushfires. So part of the reason this has been set up is to help them recover after the 2019-20 bushfires. Do you know, Camille, whether it was in that uh, area previously or they're just trying to boost the population? Was it missing? Yeah, it was actually there before, so they're they're reintroducing it where it wasn't. But the the reserve was set up initially because of the bushfires, and now they're like, oh, yeah, we've got this species. They actually bred them near Canberra, so our Priam Australia's facility in Canberra. So we've actually been looking after them without knowing about it. (laughs) And I wonder whether they breed at a rate of the common mouse, the musk mouse. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think they're a bit shorter than it, but they're, they're hoping that the studies will show that, that, that they get to see more babies on their, on their studies as they go forward. And so. typically a mouse has a pretty short life cycle, little, <laughs> mm. and it like it only live for 18 months or two years maybe. Yeah, like so they're hoping that they can get that, that 13 mice that they've put in, double and triple in a relatively short period of time, and then also once again see what effects it's having, what other species are they helping alongside them in this reserve because other things will predate on them hopefully not cats and rats no well and, they've and, got this enclosure to keep the all the oh, ferals and uh, the mice out so uh, okay it's a really new reserve that the new south wales government's just put in along with six well they've got three existing so there's another three new that they're coming on then this one will make it seven uh in new south wales complete to help do these in different areas of the state so we're not this one's yeah kind of really close to victoria um, but they're all over the state there doing these other ones. But the mice are, are I think, are a cute little thing to get back in. And something you don't, once again, with bushfires, we're, we're thinking of the koalas, we're thinking of the trees, um, but not so much the small little rodents that run around on the ground. Has there been any updates so far, or is this still quite relatively 
new. It's pretty new. Yeah. So the reserve was announced in, in May, and then these guys have gone in in the last week or so. Okay. But they're hoping that within about six months they can still see them there and then also hopefully see them so, live. So, Camille, to, to kind of jump a little bit here, <laughs> uh, the, the term that springs to my mind, <laughs> pardon the pun, is uh, Anthropocene. Okay, now I've, I've just dropped a really big topic <laughs> in here, but what we're, what we're demonstrating here is that, uh, and the concept of the Anthropocene is that humans are now integral to the environment, right? Mm. So what we're doing is we're managing the environment. We are changing the environment, but we're also manipulating the environment. So we can no longer afford to just exit and leave things. So if we left and did nothing, then these in um, ecosystems would continue to degrade so what we're doing with the programs and, and Millie the one that you talked about before that's what we're doing with this yeah we're, in some instances we're trying to return it back to what we would consider normal in quotes or natural instances yep. but in other instances I think we're trying to actually also say okay this is going to have to get resilient to bushfires or mm. increased temperatures. We're pushing it back into something closer to what it was, yeah. And yeah. I guess what one of our great goals here is uh, biodiversity because one of the, the key outcomes of um, species loss is loss of diversity. Yeah. And a system that doesn't have diversity is not robust. And I really like that you brought this story because... As you were saying, everyone's focusing on the big picture animals like the koala, mm. the wombats, things like that. But these little mice, they play an integral role in biodiversity as well. And I feel like a lot of the time people overlook that because they're not as cute and fluffy and yeah. well known. Well, we know? like fuzzy, but always <laughs> <laughs> like very dead right. Uh, okay, so keep going, uh, Camille. Is there more to this one? Um, so there, there's a little bit more. So they're saying um, native animals like the, the long-footed potteroo and the eastern betong, which we talking about before, and the eastern quoll are also due to be reintroduced into this area as well. Um, so they're predator-free areas across the state, and they, you know, they hopefully we'll get that biodiversity as we reintroduce more and more of the animals that are supposed to be. But of course, the ideal situation, well, first of all, not to threaten the species to begin with, uh, yeah. <laughs> but also if they could be self-sustaining populations without any intervention from us, so if they could be released into the wild and uh, they could look after themselves, that would be a great Yeah, and there's always thing. the hopes with these exclusion zones that, that, yeah, the populations become big enough that they can then do a release out. I've seen a few instances where they have a small cage where they get them done and then a slightly bigger area in there. And it's, it's kind of like uh, marine protected areas, isn't yeah. it? Because you have a, uh, um, a protected zone and it allows a population of fish and whatever seafood. Oh, there you go, there's my bias. <laughs> marine life could be even a weed or something to grow into that area and it seeds the area around it. Yeah. So it, it's it yeah it means that there's some spaces where we definitely know the ferals and the cats are not going to get them, and it's also somewhere they can hide. There was a few uh, like a couple of programs that said that there'd be a gate to go out and back in again. So we're effectively giving them a hide to get in and out of it once it becomes big enough, of course. One, one story that really kind of strikes me in this conversation is uh, there's a really rare plant that lives on the steep slopes of Hawaii. How's this for uh, <laughs> an, an obscure story, right? And that's some big spiky stall um, thing with a flower on top, a bit like a, a 
uh, what do you call it, a succulent, you know, yeah. all the cactus-like thing. And there's a particular bird that fertilizes that <laughs> species, right? Now, that bird, I think, has gone extinct. So it's, it's, it's one of those really tightly coupled relationships that that bird and that plant live together. And so what they've got now, volunteers go down. They have to go down. They have to abseil off the side of these. <laughs> yeah. And they have to, at the right time, they collect the pollen and they fertilise wow. the other plants so that that species can remain. Wow. Bag's not being the abseiler, though. No. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, but it kind of shows how, how desperate we're getting when we're doing that kind of thing. Yeah. And actually, on a related track, uh, we talk about species that are closely related or, or dependent on each other. A friend of mine, uh, Lizzie, who I was talking, telling you about earlier. It's the moth before, lady. Uh, the moth. <laughs> my, my moth friend, yeah. There's a species of moth that is it's specifically uh, pollinates one baronia plant uh, from southwest West Australia. Oh, wow. So very niche. <laughs> it's really niche, and that makes them vulnerable. So you take one out, the other one goes. Mm. And there's uh, all these. I mean, it's the point. The thing, the nets of ecosystems is we don't. Uh, we probably don't even know all of the connections that are already in ecosystems. Well, what eats the moth and so on? Actually, speaking of moths, uh, mm. when's the last time you saw a bogong moth? Oh, a oh. long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, that, this one really fills me with dread. Mm. So, Camille, are you a long-time Canberran or are you from... Uh, I've been here a couple of years, but not, not... Have you seen one yet? No, I haven't. I think I maybe the first year I was here I might have seen one, but... It used to be that outside our kitchen window there would be a big cloud of bogong moths, like mm. hundreds of them, mm. and around Parliament House they had to switch the spotlights off because <laughs> they, they were just swamping the whole place. Well, for various reasons, because of the light traps, I think is one reason. Maybe insecticides or farming. I think it's both of those things: um, light pollution and insecticides and pesticides. So this thing, there's the moths. You know anything about their life cycle, Millie? Um, all I know is about their migration <laughs> and um, how every year the numbers have been dwindling, mainly due to um, getting sidetracked, basically from lights on the way do you know where they come from is it like i know west, they're going to central western queensland or somewhere like that they're going to kosciuszko darling downs yeah so they, they probably come in from queensland and go from queensland kosciuszko, and they migrate to the alps alps to yeah the kosciuszko alps yeah and it's really sad actually because um i know the mountain pygmy possum yeah. that's when they're emerging from hibernation yeah the bogon moths a food source for them as the well. The pygmy possum lives under the snow. Or yeah, something. yeah. And and it's was it, yeah. So when the moth goes, what's going to happen to the pygmy possum? Mm. Oh, now I'm getting depressed. Oh. Look, <laughs> you, you promised to cheer me up in this program. Maybe let, let's. Wasn't it just some music to cheer you up? I think. Let, yeah, let's. We've got some music, uh, Millie, and your your OIC uh, <laughs> music now. Yeah, I chose this one, so oh. uh, it's all on me if you don't like it. So. <laughs> So we've got to get the right button, CD number two. Yep. And let's hit it, fuzzy logic. <laughs> oh, a bit of 
credence, Clearwater Revival. <laughs> Gosh, we're showing our age. <laughs> Actually, I think I might be the oldest person in the studio. Fuzzy logic. <laughs> and I'm enjoying my time here today with uh, uh, Camille and Millie. We're talking about extinction and de-extinction now. You have another story for us about moths, I think, Might Camille. be slightly more uplifting than the others. That's a good. We need that. <laughs> so these moths are called... Uh, now, I've got to get the right... I think it's called Death's Head Hawk Moths. Um, if you've seen Silence of the Lambs, it's the moth that's featured on the cover oh. art of oh, Silence of the Lambs. Oh, they take it the out of the victim's mouth. Yeah, because so, oh, it's creepy. got like a skull pattern on the yeah. back of its wings. Uh, so the, these guys migrate from Europe to Africa, so like we talk about the Bogongs migrating, um, but they never really quite knew how they did it. They thought they just kind of flew straight and direct. So they fitted 14 moths with a minuscule tracking device <laughs> On, on the moth, and um, this guy got into his Cessna and just flew around until he picked up one of the signals and took off after it. And they found, so they, they didn't get lots of them. Um, one of the researchers is actually at James Cook University in Townsville, but the, the study was run by the Max Planck Institute in Germany. And so he would circle, find his little moth, and, and run after it. And he found there were three flying strategies of the moths. He said um, one was if they had tailwinds, they would fly a bit higher and they would take advantage of the winds which were going southwest. Uh, if they, they would fly partly downwards and offset a bit to, along the journey if the winds were not quite as favourable and if they were really unfavourable, so they were crosswinds or headwinds, so into their face, the moths would fly really low down and just punch into the wind. And they, like, they didn't, they said flying lower to the ground gave them more control and speed because they had buffering from the wind, so the wind still affected these tiny little moths. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. They're doing that with our Google Maps. Exactly. No <laughs> GPS. But, but the thing is, they're not just navigating, they're using a strategy for the most efficient way to get where they've got to go. Yeah, and, and they, they fly at night, so it's even like next level. Wow. <laughs> a, a brain that's about as big as a grain of salt. And yet somehow they're able to figure out, they're going, oh, how they're tracking on this. Where the wind's coming from, where it's going to, how can I use that to my best advantage? It was just, it just blew, blew their minds and blew my minds. And they said it wasn't a large sample size, but just the ingenuity of let's get a really tiny transmitter onto these things. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they signed up for the privacy provisions. <laughs> But yeah, how how to get a transmitter to, to carry on a moth? That, uh, yeah, that's the picture of them kind of trying to install it was quite. How, how did they guy. do it? It was kind of pinched in his hands, and they'd glued it on top of the little furry body of the of the moth. I mean, obviously they didn't want to impede the moth's mm. aerodynamic things because there's too much it, weight but, or wow. too much it's point two of a gram of a milligram actually i think it was <laughs> so it wow. was just really how much that would have cost oh no point two grams because the 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 things um but they said they could have continuous tracking for up to 90 kilometers so and so presumably <laughs> the bogong would be doing something similar because it uses the wind currents it would be an interesting comparison to see particularly of the of the like the distance that they're traveling and and as you say that diversion into the light or whatever they're, they're doing so um, yeah can oh. I, I just like the uh, the idea of a guy just getting into his cessna and listening out for the beeps <laughs> from a from a moth tracker and then just following one <laughs> that's, that's, that's a great that's i love that story yeah. <laughs> uh, millie you've got a story for about lord howe island as well yeah this is a bit different though but it's also a really exciting success story so um i don't know if ever, anyone's heard but um in 2019 
they launched a rodent eradication program of Lord Howe Island to really rid rid the area of 300,000 rodents. So this program took over 15 years of planning and research, and it actually marks the first rodent control program to be conducted on a permanently inhabited island, which wow. is pretty cool. So if you're anything like me and we're wondering how on earth did these rodents get here in the first place? Well, the mice got there in 1850s and the rats in 1918 after escaping from sinking ships. And sin- I, uh, literally a sinking, a sinking ship. ships. That's how they all got there. Oh, I know. And it's, it was an accident, obviously, which is good to know. But yeah, but since then, the rodents have caused nothing but biological havoc on the island, and they're responsible for the extinction of five endemic birds and also thirteen endemic vertebrate species. Wow. However, there is a positive note on this. Um, a seventeen million dollar eradication program was put in place. And it funded the deployment of 22,000 traps and also 40 tonnes of poison, which is dropped from helicopters. Um, and it can be deemed successful as the last rodent was spotted in August last year. Wow. Um, and continuing with monitoring is um, another point of success. And this is done through um, bringing in specialised dogs. Super oh, cute little dogs that can spot them out and hunt them. And oh. get, yeah. I've seen footage of them, yeah, running yeah. around on the sides, chasing down the rabbit. I, I, I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling cheerful again. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And I also think um, this is something we should all be proud of as Australians because it plays a massive role in working towards fixing the global extinction crisis. Yes. Um, and it's also helped to bring back one of Australia's rarest birds, the, um, the flightless wood hen. Their numbers, um, their populations have doubled in three years. And also for our gastropod lovers. Snails. <laughs> snails, snail lovers. Um, four critically endangered land snails have also been increasing. And yeah. one particular one has um, been seen for the first time in 20 years. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. It's fantastic. Oh, wow. So it's some more excellent news. means no, it's I'm been hiding not... out somewhere while all those rats have been on. I don't know, but I, I speculate that there's a really strong community involvement here with this as well, that the Lord Howe Island people were really uh, engaged with this. Is, do, you, do you know if that's true? I'd assume it would be. I know I've heard countless stories and countless news articles about how much people hated these rats. They were everywhere. Really? Yeah. And, and and it sort of shows our connection to land. And you, like, I'm imagining myself being a Lord Howe Island resident, and it's on my to-do list to go there. <laughs> Apparently, it's amazing. Mm. But uh, you identify yourself with this place and with the animals and the plants, mm. not just the geography of of the place, but you know i'm from lord howe and we have these birds we have these plants and they're ours and i'm part of it and it kind of makes me think of the uh, indigenous connection to land and it's probably much harder to do that in an urban environment like so around where we are now in civic canberra you know there's buildings and stuff maybe i'm being a bit <laughs> bit pessimistic there but uh, uh but then we've got mulligan's flat and we've got our kangaroos and our wombats Yep. And so on. But Try and uh, avoid hitting the kangaroos when they jump out at night at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think I think Canberra, have someone coming from a big city, which is even, you know, less connected to its sense of place, I think Canberrans are a little bit more conscious of the fact that there's yeah. 
bush relatively close, there's animals that are at least on the fringes, and then these reserves like like mulligans and tinbit biller. And That's probably a really good segue into our next story, which is about the Tassie tiger. Mm-hmm. Now, this this could, we could fill an entire show with topic <laughs> because there are so many interesting threads into it. But the, uh, the the Tassie tiger has been extinct on the mainland for many thousands of years, right? But, of course, as we know, in Tasmania, uh, in the late 1800s, there was a bounty on the animal. And you've seen these terrible pictures mm, of yeah. their skins and they're being hung up on fences and stuff. It was classified as a noxious animal. Uh, and I just feel immensely sad when, when I see read these stories. But... Uh, the tiger was there was a bounty of five pounds for an adult or two pounds and ten shillings for a cub. Yeah. And pre-white settlement, it was estimated there were about five thousand animals in in Tasmania. I'm actually uh, uh, I've actually touched a Tassie tiger, uh, albeit wow. a stuffed one. <laughs> I had a friend who worked. I didn't think the, you were that old. <laughs> Uh, I had a friend who worked at the uh, Victoria Museum and we went round the back rooms and she showed me and I went, oh, there's a Tassie tiger. And, um, <sighs> but uh, so in 1902, so this is some time later, hunters killed, uh, they uh, collected bounty for 119 skins. In 1906, uh, 59 skins. So clearly the, the numbers were uh, rapidly diminishing. Mm. But the, the, the Tassie tiger is actually not related to a dog. It's very quite distant to a dog. It's most closely related to uh, kangaroos. Oh, oh wow. And, and I think it has a pouch. I believe it so, would do. yeah. It's a marsupial. Mm. Yeah, it? it's so the it same had... class as the, yeah. the platypus, et cetera. So. so we just, I think we feel this real sense of loss, not just me, but in Australia, and think of what this just amazing animal and, and you see that final footage of that poor thing in the cage, the last mm. one they had alive. It was called uh, Ben. Mm. Uh, and, in fact, uh, now here's a little side story. Errol Flynn, <laughs> right, the swashbuckling uh, Hollywood star. He was an Australian. In fact, he was a Tasmanian. Mm. And he had an interesting scientific background. Oh, wow. And in 1914... He warned that the Tassie tiger will become extinct. So he, he had some feeling for this animal. Mm-hmm. And in 1936, uh, get this, 1936, sorry, uh, the protection law was passed in Tasmania to protect the Tassie tiger. Yeah, and by which time moved slow was, then too. <laughs> yeah, a bit late. Uh, mm. There was one animal left, and the animal, wow. the animal called Ben something. Uh, so what do we do? Well, there is a possibility that the thing can be re- uh, revived. What's the right word? Uh, <laughs> De-extin- no, resurrected. <laughs> resurrected, that's, thank you, yeah, uh, from, the, from remaining DNA. Now, that's extremely challenging because DNA, as we know, is a long-chain molecule. That's quite fragile. Mm. And it's very hard to get a complete sequence. So mm. there has been a juvenile that was uh, sequenced, and I'm not sure whether that means the entire genome for that animal, but um, uh, I, I guess so. But there's now a project to uh, resurrect the Tassie tiger. 
and how they do that is going to be really, really interesting. Uh, well, and first of all, they've got to get the DNA. Mm. Yeah. And then if they do get the animal alive again, where do they get the diversity from? Yeah. So you've just got yeah. one DNA that's like extremely vulnerable to anything. Well, there's... They're going to crossbreed it with something else. That's I heard that, that too. Yeah. What, what were they crossbreeding with again? I think it was... Was it dingoes or something else? There was something that they were going to... Oh, Maybe yes. it's kangaroos. I don't know. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm going to get to that. Oh, sorry. Cut you <laughs> off. There's 180 to 100 individuals. So if they can get genetic diversity from those, mm. then that might help solve that problem. I don't know whether that means they can sequence or maybe just pull out bits of the DNA and but create the diversity. But that's also, you know, synthetic, isn't it? It's human engineered mm. diversity as well. So we don't even know what we're selecting for in the in the genes and what the DNA does in the animal. And you know, it's just you know, it seems incredibly, incredibly difficult. Mm. Uh, so, oh, that DNA is from the juvenile is 106 years old, right? Wow. <laughs> It's in good shape. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the thing is, the DNA of an animal, you and I, and uh, we've done interviews recently on Fuzzy Logic, it's not just the DNA, but it's how that DNA is expressed. Mm -hmm. So genes are turned on and off according to different triggers, and it can even be passed through epigenetics from one generation to the next. So there's markers put on the DNA, and it says whether the offspring are affected by that change which is pretty interesting. So the host species will be a dunnet, they think. Oh. Is a that dunnet. like a, a small marsupial? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm confused by that. <laughs> you have to Google have, that have one. A look, yeah. <laughs> I'm, okay, uh, so can we mm -hmm. look it up while we talk? So, yeah, I thought there's a thing called a fat-tailed dunnet, but that's like a little rat. Yeah, thing. that's what I thought it too. It seems like that. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it'd be good to get these people on in an interview. It would be. And another possibility is they'll use an artificial womb. I don't know if an artificial womb has ever been used on any animal. Don't think so. Yeah, there's Not a few possible anyway. expressions. So, <laughs> uh, this is like incredibly... No, it'd seem you'd want to use a womb of something the same size as it, you know. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Uh, so... This work is being funded by a $5 million uh, donation, philanthropic gift from somebody. And uh, there's a biotech company in the US called Colossal, and mm. they're teaming up with Melbourne University to do this. Now, this company, Colossal, which has got an interesting name because guess what other species they think they want to might. I was just about to stop you then. The woolly mammoth. Yeah. They're working to bring back the woolly mammoth. Ka-ching. <laughs> Yes, the woolly mammoth. They're going to have a go at, at resurrecting the woolly mammoth. And before I finish this little bit, I'd like if you've got a bit more on the woolly mammoth. Really? No, I just I'm was wondering what you thought about the whole. Oh, do we need woolly mammoths? Are they, are they <laughs> well, really necessary? <laughs> the similar uh, problem, but the thing is. Uh, so, okay, so you get through all of these steps, you get the DNA, you get an embryo, a viable thing, thing gestates, and it goes through to you know, birth, through whatever mechanism, and you've got um, uh, then what you do with it. Mm -hmm. So you've got one of these things, or maybe you've got two of these things. Where do you put them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, okay, Tassie Tiger, I guess 
what, what does the thing eat? Do you, how are you going to give it the right diet? Does it needs have their have their diet gone extinct in the, in the incidents? You know, I mean, if what they ate a hundred years ago. Are they still around? Have they changed genetically? Mm. I, I think they're probably they're um they're predators. They're, they're apex predators. Yeah, they're apex are they predators. were they predators or, or are they pred- are they, do they eat um, carrion? No, they're apex predators. They are. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Mm. So which the top I, of the tree. I, I found it quite interesting because it reminded me of the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone National Park, and mm. that was actually quite successful though. Yeah, they they made a real difference. They showed that. The whole predatory shifted back down again once they just put in the top the, um, the functioning of the river systems as well. Like mm. it had far-reaching positive impacts. So potentially, it could be a, a thylacine. Could uh, I'm, be glad a positive. You, I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> that, uh, Millie, because it's very hard to let go of our emotional response to these things. And wolves, like oh, wolves, scary, dangerous. Don't like wolves. Don't want them near me. And yet, like you say, I think there was a place in the U.S. where they removed them because it was a caribou or a grazing animal, mm-hmm. and that animal just went completely yeah. bonkers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it disrupted terribly, disrupted the ecosystem. So the wolves actually had a really important job there, mm. and we've removed the top predators. Well, we've now got cats and foxes. <laughs> That's a different story. Story for another day. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that really bugs me is the uh, baiting of dingoes. And I think this is fairly mm. contentious because if you're a farmer and you're losing your sheep to dingoes, then, you know, you, you, I understand why you'd be worried. But I've been up here like, uh, in the middle of a pine forest and there's a sign up and it says dog baiting in this area, 1080 or whatever it is. There. Yeah. And, and so we're, we're killing off the, the dingoes. The dingoes are part of our environment. Yeah, we have to learn to be alongside it and go, okay, this is, yes, farming is important and we need that, but how do we sort of say, okay, this is where we don't want them, but we do want them somewhere else and doing mm. it in them. And also differentiating between feral dogs as well, because mm. they're not, they're not natural. They're, we want, they, we don't want them in the ecosystem. And same with feral cats. It's hard to yep. kill uh, one draw, the, draw the line. Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, uh, if I understand, re- remember correctly, that there's a lot more purebred or dingoes in the wild than we thought. We kind of had this notion that they've all interbred with the uh, the domestic dog, but actually, I think there's a quite a large stock of. Uh, Apparently, yeah, which is good news. <laughs> we haven't ruined them completely yet, but. And sharks. Suppose you see shark netting is in the news again, mm-hmm. because. You know, people swimming get killed by a shark occasionally. And obviously that's pretty awful for a person who, who gets taken by a shark, but we're, we're moving the top predator. I think the grey nurse is down to several hundred mm. numbers now, so... Yeah, oh. we're going to work. <laughs> can, can we have some more happy stories to... Uh, <laughs> what about a happy song? A happy song? A happy Let's song? You've got a happy song? <laughs> All right, <laughs> and then, uh, we'll, then we'll finish up with a... Quick story at the end of the show. What have you got, <laughs> Billy? Uh, we've got another credence song again. Good idea. Let's All right, it. let's go. Here on Fuzzy Logic with Camille and myself, we're talking extinction and de extinction. Uh, that song was kind of appropriate because we were talking about moths. Moths, moon. Moths, and they, they do use the moonlight to migrate, and we've created all these light traps around. So, 
Paul Mothwell. Uh, as you might know, we have a column that runs in Australian community media, which goes out at the Canberra Times and some number of other newspapers across the country, 130 papers there are in the, in the ACM network, apparently. Uh, uh-huh. So DDT is the topic of today's Ask Fuzzy. And uh, uh, where did it come from? Well, this guy named Othmar Zeidler in 1874 was working in his lab and he made this stuff called uh, a white crystalline chemical compound that didn't previously exist. So not a, it's a non-natural uh, product. Mm. He didn't really know what <laughs> he had done. And I'm not even sure why he was doing it. I think he was just trying to figure out how the chemistry Works, but he had no idea that it was an insecticide, mm. and so he sort of parked that. But the, the I'm going to have a go at saying the, the name of this thing: <laughs> dichloride, diphenyl, trichloroethane. That sounded Beautiful. pretty good to me. <laughs> Boom tish, uh, and it repels water. It's tasteless. It's almost colourless. Unfortunately, it's also very persistent in the environment. Well, roll on now to 1939, and there was a bit of a growing interest in the idea of chemicals that could control insects, kill insects, to be more precise. And this guy, Paul Herman Mueller, uh, discovered the insecticidal properties of DDT. Mm. Uh, there began uh, the, the widespread use of DDT. Have you seen the footage of soldiers having the stuff squirted down their shirts and stuff? No. And the, the planes flying overhead, and yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That stuff was just mass-dosed everywhere. And the I think it was the American bald eagle, and the shells were affected, the really thin eggshells. Yeah. And uh, it had terrible environmental impacts. But it's kind of... I think this story is significant because it comes from this notion that we can really manage the environment with a big stick. Mm. That we've got uh, this other parallels with herbicides. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's like take a pill. Uh, I I can cure myself by taking a pill. Well, yeah, these things help, and insecticides and herbicides are really important. Antibiotics. Uh, who'd want to live without uh, penicillin? Well, we wouldn't be here. I, I had an infection on my shin when I was a kid, and 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 it, yeah, I think we had to knock it back with some pretty strong uh, antibiotics. So we need this stuff, but it, it's like a heavy hammer, mm-hmm. and uh, it has huge impacts. So they've even found DDT in the pelican, pelican penguin, sorry, <laughs> penguin uh, shells in the Antarctic. So that's all the way. Wow. Yeah, it just gets around. It gets around. Now, DDT was banned in most countries in, uh, forget the year, but... Um, <laughs> it uh, took a long while too, once oh, again. Oh, 1970s, 1980s, there you go. Mm. But still used in India and some other countries. Today? Still? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, because uh, for controlling mosquito populations mm. and mm. malaria. So if you were had family or suffering from malaria, you'd, you'd want something to control the mosquitoes, but the DDT hangs around. And what were we talking about the, the role of keystone species yeah. Yeah. Yep. earlier? Yeah. Uh, bees? 
and we've got colony collapse disorder and things like that. I, I don't know, I don't want to say that DDT is the cause of that. There's another one that's causing it that's, that was still out. Um, it's got equally a crazy name, neonicotinoids, and they're, they're ones that's quite widespread, uh, but they've been around for 20 or 30 years, and apparently they've got effects on, on bees and, and the actual insects and the pollinators. Oh, the neonicotinoids, so new yeah. nicotine from tobacco, I'm guessing. I think so. Not they so haven't said where they've spe- derived it from. Speculating there. Yeah, and, and I've really noticed this when I drive or I ride, a, I go motorcycle touring, and you see along the roadsides, they want to keep the, the grass down on the, on the road, on the verge. Mm. They just wholesale spray glyphosate mm. uh, or Roundup, the Monsanto product. <laughs> and I just think millions and millions and millions of tonnes of this stuff is being sprayed. Now, I think Roundup is a relatively benign chemical, mostly, but you know and it might have health effects. I think there's some possible indications, but um, I don't know. I just feel uncomfortable about this stuff being spread wholesale. Yeah, no, I think that they're, they're, they are developing robots for agriculture to actually target it. They scan the, the fields and the AI in the robots actually recognise that's a weed and just spray that spot and wow. how big it is and how much it needs so that you're okay. using it. Okay, Camille, that's great. <laughs> we got to do a story of agriculture weeds, herbicides. Definitely, and we'll, we'll get ourselves an expert on air. What do you What do you reckon? I think so because yeah. it's a, it's a really interesting field that's in, expanding, and farmers are keen to take it on board. So let's do that. All right, and Camille, you'll be joining me next week with Jonathan Miller. We'll be talking about steady state economies, the circular economy, stuff like that. Yep, I'm here. We've got to go. We're almost <laughs> out of time. Great to have your company today, Millie. Thanks for having me again. It's been so much fun.